0: Okay, brilliant. Well, today we are in the final part of our series in the book of Esther. Um, just to say, if you missed any uh, of the series, you can pop to YouTube or to the podcast and, and catch up. We've gone right the way through uh, the book of Esther. It's been a, a glorious journey. I think it's been incredibly pertinent and relevant to the season that we're in. Just a very quick reminder, uh, Esther was written at a real time of winter for God's people, real tough time for God's people. It was written 2,500 years ago. And in lots of ways, there's lots of similarities uh, to to the way the world is at the moment, certainly has been over the last two years. Just a very quick recap before we get to chapter 9, And as I said, the final part of our series, Uh, the Jewish people at the beginning of the book of Esther had been scattered uh, like dry leaves on a winter day. There was no temple. There was no homeland that they were in. And there was no leader of any kind for the Jewish nation at this time. They'd been swallowed up by the Persian Empire. If you can remember, King Xerxes is the one who is in charge. He's like this godlike figure who rules over this huge empire of the world. He lives in his palace up high in Susa. And he has a chief of staff named Haman who is one evil bully. One thug who has a hatred of Jews. And in the book of Esther, we meet two Jews, early on, two Jews uh, of prominence at the book of, in the book of Esther. But both of them, at the start, choose to keep their identity secret. They don't tell anyone that they are Jewish. They don't tell anyone that they serve Yahweh, that they serve God. This is not the best of time for God's people. But then Mordecai takes a stand. Esther takes a risk. And God is at work in the details. If you remember, I've said it a number of times, Esther is one of two books in the whole Bible where God is not explicitly mentioned, the other one being Song of Songs, but God is at work all the way through. If you remember, a king can't sleep. The scrolls of the Chronicle are read out. God is at work in the detail. Mordecai is then honored, and Haman dies on the very gallows that he had made for Mordecai. And last week, we looked at the fact that God is a God of great reversals. The day that was scheduled for the, the Holocaust and the annihilation of the Jews was the day of victory for the Jews. And Esther ends with Mordecai in chapter 10 becoming the prime minister, the number two in the land only to King Erxes. Okay, we're going to start at Esther chapter 9 and verse 1. We're going to read the first 15 verses. Come up on the screen or you can read it from your phone or from your Bible. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. That was the edict to, remember, annihilate the Jews. But on this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned, the great reversal. And the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Erxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to destroy those who hated them. In the city of Citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed, and here we're going to go with these names that I should have practiced, but I didn't, Parshadatha, uh, Dalphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Adila, Adratha, I told you I should have practiced these names, Arasi, Arasiyai, Adriai, Valasetha, the ten sons of Haman, that's who they were. they were the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, "The Jews have killed and destroyed five hundred men, and the t- what Have they done? in the rest of the king's provinces. Now what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's 10 sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the 10 sons of Haman. I mean, I love the Old Testament. Proper gory, The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Okay, what's happening here? What's happening here is two days when the Jews defeat their enemies. They defeat their enemies, and they kill the 10 sons of Haman. And celebrations erupt throughout the empire. This is a new chapter in the history of the Jewish identity. They've got a new beginning, a new identity, a new start. Mordecai and Esther, these people of faith, have turned into Mordecai and Esther, these people of influence. This moment is, is a revival and a renewal of the Jewish nation. And God wanted to ensure that this moment would be remembered. Let's read on into verse 20, chapter 9, verse 20 to 22. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far. To have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy, and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And just flipping on into verse 26. Therefore, these days were called Purim from the day, from the word Pur. Because of everything written in this letter, and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should, without fail, observe these two days. Every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province and every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews. Nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. Let me tell you, if I was Jewish, I would love Purim. It just sounds the most riotous ball of a festival, a celebration that you could imagine. It's basically two days of feasting of color and of joy. There's a picture on the next slide that just, this is like a modern day version of Purim. Just Colour and joy and celebrating. Do you know what the Jews do over these two days? They read out the story of Esther. They have characters who play the past. They have a Haman who, when he comes on, it's like, boo, hiss, boo. And then they celebrate for Esther and Mordecai, and they remind themselves of the story. There's a, a beautiful little thing that they bake. There's these things called the, the hamatasan. They're these pastries, three-cornered pastries. Three corners of pastry, and in the middle, there they are, in the middle uh, is a piece of jelly. And they're meant to show us that, that God is at work, the hiddenness of God, the sweet taste of God being at work amongst all the pain and all the difficulties. Purim is this two days celebrating and remembering the great reversal of the story of Esther. Remembering that God was at work in the details. Remembering that that evil Haman was overthrown. And here's what I find really interesting. You see, the book of Esther, it does not end with a victory in battle. It ends with a call To remember. That's what it ends with. To remember. You see, the scheduled day of execution have passed. The Jews are still standing. And God says, remember. Remember what I have done. You see, as human beings, I think we so often forget. We often forget that God is for us. We forget that. In all the difficulties of life, in the, in, the, in the mundaneness and the challenges, we often forget that God is for us. We often forget that God is near. We often forget that God is actively involved in the world that we are living in. We forget that, that God can make beauty out of ashes. We, we forget that God can make an army out of a valley of dry bones. We forget these things. We forget that that God can bring about rejoicing out of sorrow. And you see, we need as human beings ways to remember. We need ways to jog our memory, to be reminded of what God has done. One of the most profound stories of the observation of Purim comes. From the Second World War. It's a story where there was no wine, there was no feasting, there were no pastries, there was no color. Those celebrating were barely alive. Eighty men crammed into a half buried hut, their bodies racked with dysentery and malnourishment. Clothing hung like rags from their frail bodies. They had no hope of a future, because they were prisoners of Auschwitz. And J.J. Cohen was among this group of 80. He was a Polish teenager when taken into the death camp, and he survived. He survived the Holocaust, and he wrote about and remembered the day that the prisoners celebrated Purim together. Let me just read a little extract about what he wrote. When I, this is the young Cohen speaking, when I read aloud about Haman's downfall, the spark of hope deep inside every Jew's heart ignited into a flaming torch. When I finished, everyone cheered. For a brief instant, the dreadful reality of the death camp had been forgotten. All the hunger and suffering had receded. Having exerted all my remaining energy in my reading of the story, I sat breathless, but with my spirit soaring. And like a river overflowing its banks, the festive atmosphere and the vision of redemption burst out of the broken hearts of the camp inmates. Just for a moment. Envision those, those kind of skeletal-like men reading the story of Esther and then hearing that sheer that of hope amongst the squalor. Now, you and I may ask, what kind of story can do this? What kind of story can lift the heart's Of you and I, what kind of story can see dead men walking have hope? Well, let me tell you, we have a story that does that. We have a story. Satan's scheme to kill the Son of God was defeated on the cross. You see, the tool of death, the cross, became an instrument of life. The death of Jesus, the Messiah, was life for you and me and death for Satan. Jesus gave us our very own Purim, a celebration so we did not forget. Let me read these very well-known verses from Luke 22, verses 19 to 20. This is Jesus just before He went to the cross. Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out. For you, it must have been curious to the apostles to hear those words, not to us. We we understand and we know them. Body broken, blood spilled. Can any good come from that? They must have thought, and you and I, our broken world, our, our leaky faith, our fragile dreams. Can any good come from that? Esther says yes. Easter says yes. Purim says yes. Communion says yes. Because this is the promise of God that we are to receive. As believers, that's what we're to do. We're to receive this promise. Receive the bread. Receive the wine, receive the pastry with the hidden sweetness. Don't fall victim to the negative voices, to the chaos, to the fear of this world. Today's confusion and crisis is tomorrow's conquest. Life is full of challenges. It's full of ups and downs It's full of setbacks. People will let you down, but God never will. God never has and never will let you down. God is for you. I want you to remember that afresh. God is for you. Now, at the end of this message, we will be taking communion together. We will be reminding ourselves of the New Testament Purim, that God is for me. Remind myself as I take of bread, as I drink of wine, that God is for me. Now, before we do that, I want to close out our series with a final Esther challenge. A final Esther challenge that really sums up the book that we have gone through over the last seven or eight weeks. All of us have a choice. When we go through tough seasons, when we go through winter seasons, which we will, the old adage is you're either about to go through a tough season, you're in a tough season, or you just come out of a tough season. That's the old adage, and it's true. So when we are in that, that, that tough season, we have a choice. And the choice is very simple. The choice is do we choose despair? Do we choose to turn our back on God? Do we choose to be fearful and cynical? Or do we choose to go with where God is taking us and to develop our relationship with him, to trust him? to lean on his words and his ways and follow him in those challenging times. The choice is each one of us. It's ours. It's it's, it's each of us's. And to help us to choose the wise path, God has given us this wild story of Esther that we've been through over the last seven weeks. And the hinge passage, the hinge passage is Esther 4 and verse 14. That's the hinge of the whole book. If you remember, Mordecai is a picture of anguish in sackcloth at the palace gates. And he cries to Esther and asks her to intervene. Esther resists and says, am I going to risk my life, Mordecai? I'm not sure whether I want to do that. And then Mordecai comes in with this reply, Esther 4 and verse 14. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And in that verse is like this two-punch kind of call to faith and call to action. Call to faith, call to action. It's like God's going to get you. Call to faith, call to action. The call to faith is this. Relief will come. Relief will come. Now, Mordecai didn't know how that would happen. At that point, he didn't know what the plan was. He didn't know how God would work. So what did Mordecai do? How, how could he confidently say relief will come? Well, he stood firstly on God's word. You can imagine Mordecai would have recalled the covenants of God's promises to his people. Here's just, just a couple. Jeremiah 32, verse 36 to 38 says that God would be their people, that's the Israelites' God, and they would be his people. A covenant promise. Ezekiel 37, 24, and 28, summed up, says that God would gather his people from all the countries of the world. You see, in all the confusion, in all the crisis, in all that was going on, Mordecai knew that God was a covenant keeping God. So it's this call to faith because, well, relief will come because God is a God of his promises. And then as relief will come because, because we need to focus on God's power. And this, this is so key and I think so pertinent for, for all of us. We need to shift our focus away from the challenges at hand and ponder afresh the power of the Almighty God. What about the question that God asked Abraham and Sarah when he promised them a son? They were both old. They were both past the the age of of childbearing. And Genesis 18, I'll just read it, verse 13 to 14. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am too old? Here it is. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. And about this time next year, Sarah shall have a son. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Nothing is too hard for the Lord. He will not quit and give up. God never shakes his head and says, can't do anything with him. Can't do anything with her. Can't do anything with that situation. Because nothing is too hard for the Lord. And that has to be our starting place, even in times of winter and even in times of challenge. You see, we shouldn't measure the height of the mountain that we face. Rather, ponder the one who made it. We should start. Stop telling God how big our storm is and tell the storm how big our God is. And and this is is how I boil it down, and this I want you you to hear. It's not that your problem is so big. It's rather that your view of God is too small. That is what I think is is the root issue for many of us. Psalm 34 and verse 3 says, magnify the Lord with me. And you see, we have a tendency, unfortunately, to magnify our problems, magnify our difficulties, magnify what's going on in the world, magnify what's going on in our life. Rather than magnify, make big and and remind ourselves of who God is, his awesome power, the reality of who he is. And some of us need to stop, some of us need to, how to put it like this, some of us need to meditate less on our mess and more on our master. Okay? Meditate less on the problems and the difficulties and the mess of your life and more on your Lord and Savior and the master who loves you. And I think the church in UK, in the West, am I might even at? not around other parts of the world, but certainly in the UK and maybe even in the West, the church has forgotten the vastness of God. It's forgotten. And when we gather as God's people, we can so be so preoccupied with our problems that we forget the almighty power of the name of Jesus. We forget that the name of Jesus calls demons to flee. We can forget that the angels are singing and have been singing, Holy, Holy, Holy to the Lord God Almighty since the beginning of time, throughout time, and will for all time. You know, in scripture, glimpses of God's glory turned Isaiah to beg for grace and Moses to duck for cover around a rock. We need to recapture. This, this glory and grandeur about who God is. I think many of us in the church are suffering from a loss of awe. And the consequences of that are big because if, if you have a wimpy view of God, you create wimpy saints. who don't really match up to the struggles and trials of life. But if you have a great view of God, you have solid saints who stand in the storm, who stand in the battle. So I want to challenge you, get under your skin a bit this morning and say, would you go back this week to your homes and, and go back into this week and say, Lord, would you help me have a big view of you? Isaiah 40 verse 25, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Moses says in Exodus 15, Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? As the psalmist says, Psalm 89 and verse 6, Who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? If you feel the weight of the world, which, which, We all do from time to time. Talk to the one who made the world. When you feel that weight, talk to the one who made the world. Because as we've read in Esther over the last seven weeks, if God can sway the heart of a Persian monarch, if God can reverse certain death into victorious life, if God can turn a scheduled holocaust into a celebration called Purim. Do you not think he can take care of you? Listen, you've got to be real. Many of you will be going through things that are tough. Many of you will be in winter times. You've been wounded deeply by people. People have hurt you. People have let you down. There is pain. There is fear. There is sadness. But I want you to just cling on to the story of Esther and dare you to believe that even in the winter, even in the struggles, even in the difficulties, God is at work. He might be hidden to you because he's not mentioned explicitly in the book of Esther. But he is at work. He is active. There are many things in this world that we don't know. We don't know how the economy will fare. We don't know. This is probably a good thing. but We don't know what our kids are thinking half the time. That's probably a good thing. But we don't. We don't even know sometimes what our spouse is thinking. We, we, we don't know whether our team will win on Monday night. We, we don't know these things. We don't know. But Romans 8 verse 28 says this, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In this beautiful verse, There's four things. God works. God works. He's at work, behind the scenes. He's not checked out. He's not given up. He's not moved on. God works. Secondly, he works for our good. Now, this is important. He works for our good, not our comfort, not our pleasure, and not our entertainment. He works for our good, for our good, for your good, for my good. And to do this, thirdly, God uses all things. Now, in the Greek, that word is panta, It means all-inclusive. So God doesn't just work for a few things in your life. He works through all things. Not just the easy and the nice things, but all things. And fourthly, it's for the good of those who love him. You see, good things happen to those who love and trust God. The Bible is very clear. There's an umbrella of God's protection and God's providence that is under his sons and daughters. That doesn't extend to the evil and the hard-hearted. If we seek God and seek his will, then God will be at work. You are secure in the hands of a loving and a living God. Relief will come. Relief will come. That's the kind of the punch of faith. And then the punch of action is, will you be a part of that? The entire world we are in is in a state of trauma. The last two years of COVID, everything going on right now in the war in Ukraine, uncertainty about the economy, sin and secularism leaving us dazed and confused. There is a call to action. The world needs you. It needs each and every one of us as Mordecais and Esthers. It needs people of resolve like Mordecai, people of courage like Esther, to stay steady in the chaos and to be used powerfully by God. That is the Esther challenge to finish on. Will you be a part of it? Will you, each one of you in your context, in your work, in your home life, with your friendships, in the, the circle of influence that you have, will you be a part of it? I'm going to draw this to a close. And in a moment, we're going to, we're going to share communion together. Under your seat, you should find uh, one of these uh, little personal uh, ways of taking communion together. On the top, there's a little wafer, and underneath, um, a little bit of juice. Just a way that in a moment or two, we can personally remember that God is for us. It's a way that we can remember that we are not alone in the storm. We are not alone in the battle. It is our New Testament Pure in, remembering and reminding ourselves that the cross speaks of the defeat of Satan and that we have life through Jesus Christ. So we're going to share that in a moment. And then I want to pray after we've done that and we're going to come up and worship. Maybe Emily and Adama, could you come up now ready? But after we, we've shared communion together, we're going to worship and we're going to pray. We're going to pray for our world that needs ordinary Christians like you and me. It needs Mordecai's and Esther's more than ever before. To be people of courage who stand strong and stand for Jesus. Let me pray and then we will share communion together and remember together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to take this moment to remember. All that may be flying through our mind, all that may be going on in our life, we want to take this moment to remember. And Lord, you gave us the very simple symbols of bread, and wine as the way of remembering, remembering the cross, remembering the victory, and remembering that you love us. You are for us. You wipe away our sin. You call us son and you call us daughter. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Just take a moment, take that wafer, and just meditate and remind yourself that God loves you, that God is for you, that Jesus died for you, that he is there in your brokenness, he is there in your pain, and he is for you. And then shortly afterwards, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is my new covenant. It's a new covenant of my blood poured out for you. The blood of Jesus Christ washes away our sins. The blood of Jesus Christ means that we are forgiven. It means that whatever we may have done this week in thought or word and deed is washed away by the precious blood of Jesus. As we drink, as we will do in a moment, this cup, we remember. We remember this truth. Let's drink together the cup which speaks of Jesus' blood shed for us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Can we all stand? We're going to worship with a song, and then I'm going to come back and pray for us to close. We're going to worship with a song that just speaks of Jesus' sacrifice, and is another way of remembering that God is for you. Purim reminded the Jews of the great reversal of Esther. Communion is to remind us of the great reversal of the empty tomb, that Jesus is alive and death has been defeated.